welcome to Intro to African American Studies, and this is Jennifer Williams, your professor. Uh, I hope not to make as many mouth sounds as last time, but talking is a lot, so please excuse me for whatever you hear while you're on this little video or audio recording. So this is lecture two. Lecture two uh, should be on Brightspace and includes, once again, a visual component being a PowerPoint, as well as a audio component, which you're listening to right now. So if you go to the next slide, my first main question, and this is more for you, for me than it is for you, but why are we talking about race first? And so, of course, this is African-American studies. And if you listen to me as well as by the middle of the semester, you'll realize that I really try to focus on culture, focus on people, focus on even like injustices. And the idea of race is kind of a secondary um, conversation, at least for my teaching of the class. My reasoning is basically, if you read fields, either before or after this uh, audio lesson, that we always talk about race. Like when we think about African-American studies, when we think about African-American people, we think about race first. So I have to bring it up, right? That African-Americans or black people tend to be a very raced with the D, E, D, people. We kind of verb it, right? We make it a verb. We make it something that uh, is actionable in a way that if you put an African-American in the room, we talk about race due to their presence. And so because that's kind of like the automatic response and Fields talks about it more, then I clearly as professor have to address it. So it's easier. It's the common of our society, or at least of American society, to talk about race is constantly an issue. We always bring it up in terms of uh, achievements, in terms of oppression, in terms of social inequities. It Race is usually the number one, or at least number two thing behind gender um, on how we, you know, what language, what discourse we use in order to talk about these issues. So I really wanted to get it out of the way first. But the first thing I want to ask to you, and this is a reflection that you can add on Brightspace, there's six of these in this particular lecture, so be ready to write your thoughts a lot. And a lot of them might be like similar types of questions, uh, so just make sure you give your time to address each of them and really like delve into how you're thinking about these particular questions. So the first one is, what came first? slavery or the European worldview that American African people were inferior why did you think that so either saying yes or no like really go into where those ideas um, that you are presenting to me come from is it just from family friends history and then if you are come you know whatever conclusion you are actually coming to where like what line of history or what line of information got you to that if you think slavery came first, then give me some evidence. If you think the European worldview came first, then give me some evidence, including the last lesson. And then lastly, how did you, I mean, this goes back, how did you learn about slavery and the hierarchy of races? What did you know previously and how did you learn about the information? So really, once again, get into why you know what you know, how you know what you know, and explain it to me in a paragraph or more. So this is lecture two, 
the idea of race is an ideology. Uh, I put a little asterisk by it because ideology, uh, we probably, I'm going off of Fields, right? Fields uses ideology here, but when we look at the definition of ideology, it basically sounds like worldview. So it's that similar, uh, you know, concept of these are the things, the you know, concepts, the norms, the mores, the language, the words, the terms, everything in order to understand um, phenomena in the world, how we interpret it. And so race, according to Fields, is one of these things that we use to interpret the world. Or it is its own, you know, perspective, a racial perspective, so to speak. So this is going to be split up into basically three sections. This one doesn't necessarily have a um, immediate stop point like lesson one did so this is just kind of a guide for you to know where I am they're not going to really be numbered throughout the text so this is more for me than this for you but these are the sections so we want to come to the idea of what is race right let's actually break it down and think about what this terminology really really means um, this is the definition that I've been using. There's probably a better source that I really need to get to eventually, but I used to teach a film class at a previous institution. So American film, it's a book. Uh, but the division of humankind based upon a set of identifiable traits that are transmitted generationally, that is through sexual reproduction. So race tends to be, if you click to the next slide, those identifiable traits that we can see that otherwise we would call them the phenotypical traits um, using kind of a science term here so it's anything we can see on a human and we usually use these kind of groupings of certain traits and classifying them as a certain type of raced person right so when we think of hair texture the straight the curly um, super coily head shape it's that's probably more of an older one You're probably not necessarily thinking about that and today eye color eye shape lip size skin tone especially is probably a main characteristic that everyone is seeing like oh if this person has this type of skin tone then they tend to be this type of race body shape um, overall small people large people etc these are all identifiable traits that grouped together we tend to say is someone's race so it's not that uh they're equally aligned per se but we take you know a curly hair person with almond eyes large lips and a dark skin tone we may classify that person as black although that may ne not necessarily be true and we definitely will understand that when we you know actually talk about it in class so the history of that right because this clearly is not just wasn't created yesterday it has a long history of why we consider people with certain phenotypic traits to be certain races and remember this goes into the idea of they don't necessarily mean a certain race it's what we've been trained to think how we've been socialized that these are particular races otherwise you know there are hundreds of millions of whatever uh, uh genetic um ways sorry i'm blinking here but different ways that you can put together you know human phenotypic traits and you see that on people's faces and on their bodies like 
everyone definitely is different across what we will call currently races and some people may not be what aka you think they are but historically this is where our firm you know three to four races comes from right so in this uh, picture here you see that it's caucasoid mongoloid capoid congoid and australoid um, and this is one way that certain scientists let's say maybe like early 1900s categorized humanity right and they gave you if you read on the right hand side uh, different kind of things for a Caucasoid person so to speak they have light skin straight hair a narrow elongated skull a vertical face angle broad jaw and sharp chin narrow nose and small eye sockets with light colors and they said that grouping of traits is a Caucasoid person or we probably would just say a white person and then if you go down the line and read those this is how they kind of start to group humans and realizing just like in last class that this is a scientific method right they were like I'm going to observe society and in my observation I have decided that these things are true about society um, or about people and I'm going to group them as such I'm going to publish distribute my findings and people can agree or not agree and then a lot of people agreed and so as this was kind of a science then people continued to science so to speak society so once they said the physical characteristics for one thing then they also start to do other attributes of society So the scientists of the times, 1900s, 1800s, and even earlier, uh, when they began this kind of racial conversation of racing people based on their physical traits, it also became a conversation of racializing people by their inherent characteristics, those qualities that people have within them. Some of them learn, some of them, uh, you know, interpretal are subjective right um so things as you see on the little screen here aesthetics emotions physical ability work ethic intelligence um and so this is how people start to associate certain races as well now this conversation about associating you know beauty and happiness and good work ethic with a certain racial racial group or even putting it on a hierarchy is something that is definitely taboo today or at least taboo in circ circles so I understand that it's kind of just you know a little uncomfortable to start to even think about these ideas of like who the most beautiful race would be or what is the smartest race like these are conversations that definitely in the last 60 years have not been you know polite to say in public but there's a lot of science or at least old science or the area of science is usually called eugenics so if you look at eugenics they actually did this kind of characterizing the racial groups by these things um and that's an interesting historical conversation that comes really through into 2018 and how we are currently seeing people society are currently seeing people in society um, so, and it adds to, sorry, the worldview of basically 
racial ideology or how race is understood and talked about and has a language um, that we use today. The reflection that I'm stopping and saying here is I want you to look at the following pictures. They're all from a 2013 National Geographic article, which talks about, it basically says like the shape or the future of America, Um, but they're really looking at how quote unquote mixed individuals uh, are part of society. Um, and are basically challenging our kind of really strict notions of race. So I already said that these people that you're going to see are mixed. Um, And then I want you to actually look at that. If you saw these individuals, what race or groups of race would you think they are? How do you think they feel about how other categorize them into particular races? What words would you use to describe them? And what words do you think they would use to describe themselves? And I'm going to preemptively ask you not to use the word human. I understand that that's an easy like go-to to be like, well, I assume they describe themselves as human. But at least, you know, deal with this reflection for a second. And, you know, it's an easy go-to. And I understand that we want to like move beyond and be progressive and challenge even our own personal notions through this exercise. But if you have a moment and you actually really do take your two seconds to look and be like if I saw them in real life and someone asked me what they were how would you describe them and you know get at that so there's about 11 people you don't have to go too detailed and you kind of can be very general um and if you actually feel kind of bothered you can pick maybe two or three of them um and then give me your description of them So after that reflection, um, this kind of goes to the idea that it began seeing race and being able to categorize and put people into racial categories is kind of a skill that's part of the American worldview. So anyone who's lived in the United States for a long time, anyone who's been born here, we tend to develop a way of describing people by their race, a way of quick hand, you know, a quick hand to say that person is Asian or that person is white or that person is that and it is very much learned it is very much reinforced by various elements of our society by our teachers by the way we talk about it even in as we're saying a progressive way because a lot of our conversations especially in the university is to have diversity right but our diversity definitely we have to have a language what is a person that fits the category of diversity how do we know we've achieved diversity when we get into those kind of weird things it's not usually about class or you know different income levels it's not usually about I mean you know people who like certain books over the other you know it's usually about their racial category And it's interesting that I wanted to add that a study of brain activity at the University of Colorado in Boulder shows that people register race even before they registered gender. Now that blew me away because I didn't even know that. And I was like, that's a deep idea, right? That, you know, at 10 feet away, a person's coming towards you and you know their race, or at least you perceive their race before you know some other characteristic about them. 
I'm kind of wondering, you know, how they actually got into that study. So I'm curious. So Americans tend to have implicit racial biases, right? So we're all conscious of race, people who are born and have lived in America for a good amount of years. But now we also have, I'm not going to say hierarchy of race, because that's a little, you know, might be extreme. But we definitely have a bias towards uh, certain characteristics towards certain races, right? And so implicit bias, I give you a definition here, um, is unconscious, right? It's not necessarily like, I know that I really, really like a certain type of person. It's not saying that. But it is those kind of like, since we all have a really you know understanding of the world we experience the world we're trained to experience the world in certain ways and then when we come up to um, when we have positions of power or positions of friendship or choice of family we might you know lean towards one group over another or when we have negative feelings towards one group over another and so this may lead to unintended discriminatory consequences so and this is not just for you know white individuals feeling negatively towards black people it's not always that even sometimes it's white people um having sorry i misspoke african people or african descended people or black people having a positive bias for white people because they live in a society that institutionally has a positive bias towards white people and so they themselves as black people have adopted that kind of implicit bias other times um and we kind of understand this naturally if i can even use that word here um we have implicit bias towards people of our own race so and that comes from like you're usually around those people and those people who you're around have a positive influence around you and towards you and for you so you tend to have a bias towards people who look like you or at least people who you were raised by and so you may also have an implicit bias in that regard um but with these implicit biases as i said earlier they may have discriminatory consequences you may feel positively you may feel negatively towards a certain race And then when you have the ability to act upon those things, like if you are um, giving out jobs, if you are forming your groups for your papers, uh, for your projects, I mean, if you are, you know, part of anything where you have to start to categorize individuals, then you may become, uh, you may partake in a discriminatory practice. So this is where we get that term racism straight out, right? So racism, and this is my definition here, is generally defined as actions, practices, or beliefs, or the social and political systems that are based in the views that see the human species divided in races that have these kind of things um, and are ranked as inherently superior or inferior to others or that members of different races should be treated differently. And so these biases that we have can lead to a racist way of acting in the world as well as how we believe people to be.
So there are two types of racism that I, you know, focus on. There's racial prejudice, which is just your beliefs or attitudes, and then there's racial discrimination. Racial prejudice is doesn't isn't that interesting um because it's the things that are in your head and you may not act upon them ever you may be the most you know equal person in the world and you could be quote unquote a racist in your head but racial discrimination this is where we have a lot of the major problems right because it's how people start to act it's how people um, influence others it's how it's institutionalized that you know starts to add to harm or add to the harm of humans in the world or at least in the United States so these examples of racial discrimination um, as you see here there are a lot of them to do as I was saying with the institutionalized stuff yes individuals do partake in racial discrimination um, most times though it's because they have power given to them by some institution that institution being the media, higher education or education in all um, levels. They have access to giving people houses or not. Um, and especially, which is a big one, is jobs as well as anything to do with the judicial process from uh, the police to judgment to um, incarceration. So all of that becomes examples of racial discrimination due to people's racial prejudice and beliefs and connected once again to their implicit bias. So in the next slide, I just wanted to put this kind of picture here in order to show an example of how things become uh, discriminatory or has a negative impact upon certain populations because of someone's implicit bias and which can be interpreted depending upon course the person or institution as just plain old racial discrimination and so you see this kind of one two three four thing is that someone's going to have in schools specifically is particularly with discipline in schools that a teacher may have an implicit bias um, particularly for African-American children, they are seen to be more troublemakers um, than white students or any students who aren't black. And so they may have a policy that, you know, anyone who uh, shouts at the teacher once is automatically expelled or sent to the principal's office or given some sort of negative consequence but this is all based on what a teacher perceives to be yelling or perceives to be the you know the extreme of yelling and so when you look at like classroom dynamics a teacher who feels implicit bias positively towards maybe white children will see their yelling as not that bad but then they would see an African-American child's yelling as bad. So even though the same thing is happening because they have an implicit bias towards how white children act versus how black children act that they may themselves may not be really like thinking about as, you know, uh, inside themselves. They may not, they actually may say, I'm not a racist, but when black children yell, they feel more threatened or they feel like it's more disrespectful or some other emotional output but then that action 
would lead to more African-American children being disciplined and less white children being disciplined for the same action. Now to solve that conversation, we would have to delve into a lot deeper of school choice and uh, disciplinary behaviors and even if children should be disciplined at all for certain actions and what does discipline mean in schools. There's a lot of other stuff like that. But I just wanted to show you kind of an example of where this could go using this slide. So in reflection three, which is not reflection, you know, not connected to the previous slide, um, I want you to discuss colorblindness, right? And so this is one of these kind of conversations that at least has been in the last 10 years of how we solve the racism problem in America because people can show you evidence that there is discriminatory practice, that people are being harmed by how people act and feel towards them, excuse me. So some believe that colorblindness or the idea that ignoring or overlooking racial and ethnic differences can promote racial harmony ultimately can eliminate racism. And so I'm curious, what are your views on colorblindness? Um, I have my views, don't be affected by that. I really want you to hear what you think. And maybe you even have imp you know, personal examples that when you decided to not look at color or not look at the differences based on racial characteristics that you felt uh, it had a positive affect or a positive impact on how you engage with other people. Um, so look at it in that way. Or even if you felt negatively impacted that people stopped seeing you for your racial uh, reality and that you felt invisible to that conversation. And so all these things are valid. How do you connect? How do you feel impacted by colorblindness? So I think you've heard this term before is the idea of a social construct, right? And this always comes up with race. So when we're learning about race, when everyone's trying to explain it, when everyone's trying to, essentially, I think they're trying to uh, disempower race or at least the negative consequences of race. Everyone's like, race is a social construct. That's like the party line. Race is a social construct. So I want to really like make sure that you and that this class that we really understand what social construct is. So, you know, if I was in class and asked you, how do you define social construct before I give you the actual definition that I use, what would you say? Right. And it's kind of usually it's kind of nebulous. It's like race isn't real, um, which is somewhat true, but trying to, you know, really give a firm definition in order to understand how social constructs act in our real world and how we are impacted by them and how they are maintained. So a social construct is kind of idea or concept that people have built and then they organize and classify their actions and thoughts around it. So it's once again related to the bigger idea of worldview, ideology, perception, right? So these are these subsets of that. So we got big ideology, and then there are subsets of the big worldview that we build, and we put meanings and concepts around it. And so these creations, whatever they are, are born, they're institutionalized, and they're made into tradition. So sometime in the past, people created race, for example, they institutionalized it, and then 
it now feels as though it is tradition and that race becomes basically like Christmas. It's also a constantly ongoing process, right? Because we're kind of going back to the idea, even to give it a little bit of credit, that race isn't real. Yeah, but race is only as real as basically we make it to be. So if people didn't keep maintaining the idea of race or maintain the practice of seeing people as racialized individuals, then maybe some of these things would break down, which goes back to my question about how do you feel about colorblindness? Examples of social constructs, and I give you a nice happy list here. Um, and this isn't something you have to make into class or make into a reflection assignment, but really think about why these things are examples of social constructs. Usually if I do this in class, I really go into the grades one, right? Because grades are something that we all really believe in and that we take for granted in a way, but grades aren't real, right? A, B, C, those kind of things are flexible. Um, we only give them power because we say they have power. We've institutionalized them multiple times over in different levels of the educational process. But if we stop using grades, if we change the system, if we change the institutions in order to diminish the power of grades, then how else would we, or I'm asking, are there other ways that we could assess your learning? There, there are other ways, but we would have to, you know, go into that conversation and also ask ourselves, why do we depend upon grades in order to function in this kind of smaller space? So actually ask those questions to yourself about some of these other questions, other, sorry, racial constructs or social constructs, um, sexuality, beauty, family and relationship goals, um, structures. Is monogamy the only way? Has it always been the only way? Deviance, citizenship, all these things are social constructs. And remember that our worldview changes what the social constructs act like. So sexuality, sex, gender, race, deviance is not the same depending upon your worldview, right? These are influenced by and change. So... The next slide, right? I say here, social constructs have in real life or material consequences. And I emphasize this a little bit, right? Because this goes to where I'm, that's why I have a kind of an issue with people saying race isn't real. Race may not, you know, exist, I guess, um, in kind of a real way. You can't hold race in your hand, I guess. Um, but how people practice race, how people racialize other people, how people see themselves as race individuals affects the world around them, affects how everyone treats each other in the world, affects how our, our systems and institutions are constructed themselves. So it doesn't, you know, it's still a concept in our heads, but basically it plays out in reality and it's not always negative right and these are probably kind of harder examples that I definitely can't give off the top of my head but it's not 
well I can there's benefits right and we call it white privilege is one of those benefits of being raced um, when white people are raced as white they receive benefits from the society so it's not always these material consequences are not just oppression are not just being seen as inferior sometimes they are seen as superior or positive and sometimes they're just neutral sometimes it's just oh you're a racial person i'm going to you know make sure you have a ham sandwich because you eat ham you know i'm being a little flip in my conversation but it doesn't necessarily have to always be negative so we have to say that this the material and real life consequences are across the board from positive and negative so when we think of race as the social construct, right? So it's part of this category of other things. When race is a social category, then we're talking about all those kind of biological differences and then the more problematic uh, inherent qualities of an individual as part of how we conceive of race as a social construct. And the social construct of race, and this is all the stuff I've been talking about already, has been kind of the foundation of racism. And we want to like, and we want to separate race and racism sometimes, right? And this is also how fields kind of will talk about it. That just because we can see and read race doesn't mean we had to make it a hierarchy. And that's why the definition of racism has that kind of hierarchy or treating people differently conversation with it. Race is just seeing those phenotypic differences. But racism is then making those differences have power. And we have to separate the two. So racism or seeing race doesn't necessarily mean you have to be racist. But because of the American history, the experience of this country and how we are trained, usually the two are combined. But we, can, we should be able to at least, you know, philosophize over different ways of seeing race without racism in order to like have that reality. So racism then has been, you know, part of and the... Um, foundation for horrible atrocities in United States history as well as the world and so in my little dictionary of human geography it's connected to colonialism and the you know destruction of land or other people's lands of that slavery apartheid in South Africa and other places in the world um, as well as the Holocaust these are all racist projects where people you know, harmed humans, other humans, based on racial categorization. One of the things, once again, I appreciate this human geography dictionary definition because it also talks about the geographies that are created because of racism. So segregated neighborhoods, ghettos, ways to, you know, push people in different locations of the world. And of course, it usually adds to health concerns, uh, class mobility is um, stagnant when you purposely move humans based on the racial category from one area to another so the conversation of gentrification is definitely part of that who gets moved out who gets moved into certain areas based upon their economic status but their economic status as well as the locations they are 
is often also tied to the race of the person. So I'm skipping kind of slides too because you can just read them. But race is an ideology as I was expressing earlier or racism as an ideology. Probably going to mix conversations here, but ideology in general is defined by fields connects to the idea of worldview the definition is very very similar i would have to ask her myself if she really sees a difference um or probably ideology is a little bit more connected to academia or at least the writing of human events or the study of human events is probably what she would consider more ideology as worldview may have a more cultural or in the community in the world kind of conversation but i'm not sure they basically seem the same Um, So when we think of race as part of one's ideology, right, then it's influenced by, affected by the group or at least the group think that one may have. So race is perceived to be different. Um, And so this is a me claim that race is an item of American ideology or racism is definitely a foundational concept of an americocentric worldview and so we have to definitely see that kind of reality that american worldview it doesn't need race but it currently is living with race as almost the central question and this i would say it depends who you talk to but any kind of American conversation or conversation about American issues, race often gets brought up either implicitly or explicitly. So when we think about the ideology of racism, uh, Fields and myself will always bring back kind of a historical conversation. It's never just going to be like, well, today race is this because it comes from somewhere. We just don't, you know, create race. Well, we do create race constantly, but it's traditional right we celebrate it every day when we talk to people when we read things when we engage in media race is constantly being performed by individuals as well as institutions um so on the next slide you see kind of a picture uh, of like hieroglyphs or hieroglyph imagery people standing sideways with their hands down and they're all colored differently so i'm showing you this kind of example um because i used to teach this slide whenever i used the idea of race i was like race has always been around it's been around for ages and ages you see in this old picture of classification it says the ancient egyptian division of mankind to four species red yellow black and white and i was teaching this and i was like yes race has always been a thing especially in the way that we currently define it as colored people kind of thing Um, And then, you know, I had to be a good academic and always do my research. And so when I researched this, I found that it was from 1854 and they published it in order to promote their uh, ideology. So this isn't just like base science, right? They found, they went to Egypt, I assume, because sometimes these Egyptologists didn't go to Egypt, but they might have read something, saw something, copied these things down and then um, they made their own interpretation of what they saw. So we can't necessarily say that 
during ancient Egyptian time or the 15th century as they claim that the Egyptians saw that these four groups of people were different races. They may have actually just thought they were different nations or the one of the individuals that they found from that nation looked like this and then they documented it. Um, so this is one of those things where we can't always trust academia. This is written in the book, we can cite it, we can say this is true. At the time that, you know, not and Glidden's wrote it, but their conversation about race is very, very linked to the time period in which they wrote it and the worldview in which they had. So even I had to, you know, distinguish that what they wrote in 1854 is not necessarily what was written in 15th century BC and definitely would not be what we want to see or even that I would want to spread as a scholar to you saying that race was always the way it was forever and ever. All, you know, basically I'm saying all our scholarship is flawed and we really need to check or always have a, you know, very present, um, you know, when we see it, interpret when the time period that certain writings came out and how they saw it versus what we would see it because our interpretations, our worldview, our perspectives would be different and have bias. So remember, we're still biased. Even in our future thinking, we are biased. Even in seeing it from our perspective, we're biased. And actually, as good researchers and good academics, we should write our bias down. But often people, as I said in my previous lecture, use objectivity, use their rationality to say that they are right, that they observed, and therefore it is truth. But as in this class, definitely, please, please question that. So for this kind of conversation, right, the scholarship of race, um, that was more of a general example. And I'm going to show you a couple examples for uh, African people specifically. And these are both of these examples are during the time of enslavement. Um, well, no, one of the examples is during the time of enslavement. The other one is a little bit after. Uh, but remember that Africana people specifically have been subjected to a negative uh, concept of themselves. Often I'll use it as anti-black racism or an anti-black worldview or seeing Africana people as inferior. It's that kind of language that I will use and that you should use in class if you want to talk about how people historically have interpreted uh, the quality or the intrinsic characteristics as well as extra you know external physical characteristics of African people in the negative light right and remember and I'll bring this up in class definitely but the idea that some of these positive things like African people are hard workers was often used in order to perpetuate their exploitation um, as enslaved people, as sharecroppers, etc. So even though, you know, some of them are positive qualities, how they were used was often for, you know, ill intent. Um, 
so the first one and like i said you can read these i'm just going to give kind of basic uh list here so the first sentence is the one that always gets me that they seem to require less sleep and the author here is talking particularly about his uh maybe not his but in general the african people who work for him without pay um they seem to require less sleep and then if you skip down to the bottom in memory they are equal to whites so he was giving them credit but in reason and remember reason is important reason is that distinction between certain peoples um and this was written in like the 18th century right um they're much inferior i think one black person could scarcely be found capable of tracing and, comp- and comprehending the investigations of euclid mathematician and that in imagination how they create things they are dull tasteless and anomalous aka they're abnormal so their imaginations are not even worth it to him and for those who are already kind of reading ahead i always ask like who do you think wrote this and if you go to the next slide, you'll see that this is within Thomas Jefferson's Notes to the State of Virginia. Um, and of course, if you've heard or read anything, Thomas Jefferson's relationship with his enslaved uh, people is, you know, historical, <laughs> is epic and interesting. And people do a lot of stuff about uh, Sally Hemings and was their relationship consensual, but can they ever have a consensual relationship if Thomas Jefferson was always in a seat of high authority and she was an enslaved individual? That conversation. Um, but for someone who is definitely part of the founding of the United States and the ideas of liberty and freedom and all that, you know, stuff that basically makes up the American uh, worldview he still had very, very negative views about um, African people and African people that he allegedly had, you know, sexual relations with. And we could, you know, have a conversation that sexual relations doesn't mean anything. Uh, But remember Thomas Jefferson on that. The next one, and I always wanted to make sure that it's not just when we racialize that it's not just black people that all groups who are part of the american you know melting pot that they are all have been racialized and put into a hierarchy with white usually almost always at the top and actually african-american usually always at the bottom um and so this one is a conversation about the irish Um, And so if you once again go to the history of America, even people who have those features, those phenotypical Caucasoid features, light skin, straight hair, certain facial features, um, were not always considered white, white. Now, I know that's kind of a weird saying, even for myself, what is white, white? I don't know. But to whiteness was given to or at least was allowed for certain groups, particularly the Irish, a lot of people from Eastern European, Italian. So those particular groups were, and the and Jewish people. So those particular groups were not given whiteness or at least a high status in the racial hierarchy of America when they first arrived in the United States. And sometimes um, if you look at the historical language, when they first come and they're still having a negative conception because they weren't British or French or whatever, the kind of the main um, 
ancestry of the people who are in the United States, uh, whenever the time they came, they would be compared to African people all the time. So Irish Iberian, as they're saying here, they are believed to have been originally an African race who themselves thousands of years ago spread throughout Spain and over to Western Europe. So essentially, they're trying to add to the idea that these people are connected to the Africans. And so in that last sentence, they say that in consequence of their isolation within Ireland um, from the rest of the world, have never been comprised in the healthy struggle for life and thus made way according to the law of nature for superior races. So once again, this interesting conversation of how you make a category and how you make a hierarchy of certain individuals. So the Irish, because they're connected to the African people at a historical point in time, and eventually, since they did not do the same things that British and that kind of more positive, I guess, white individual did, that they are not as superior as, as it says here, the Anglo-Teutonic. And this was an 1899 one, which is the same time as the white man's burden. Interesting, like, comparison, right? Um, and then my last kind of historical example, like I said, once again, can we trust history? Can we trust the scholarship of previous generations? We always have to look at it. Fine tooth comb in context every time. So this was an encyclopedia um, in the it was an entry in the Encyclopedia Britannica in 1911 that if you read the whole thing, it's a lot of interesting history. But ultimately, my little bolded section here is the mental constitution of the Negro is very similar to that of a child. So once again, it's those inherent, those intrinsic qualities that they're saying is part of their official definition for what an African person was. And this is 1911. So this is post-enslavement, which ends in 1865 with the Civil War, ends before that in 1863. But around that period, slavery is ending in the United States and has been ended around the world for the most part, except in a few places. Um, and in 1911, with this encyclopedia article, it still is giving African people a intrinsic quality of negative um, characteristics, negative traits. So even in 1911, as people are trying to fight for civil rights, this is the official scientific, in a way, definition, right? This is what we would use and cite in 1911 if we were scholars back then. So now we're getting to Fields, and Barbara Fields is a professor at Columbia currently, um, and she's won many awards and all this other stuff. So you see this is her picture here, and there is a YouTube clip that I want you to watch. And so don't watch the whole thing. I mean, you can watch the whole thing. You have a choice to do that. But the part that I want you to watch is just the beginning. So basically a 16-minute clip um, from 3 minutes to 1913, in which she and Ta-Nehisi Coates are talking about a book that she wrote. Um, when after you've watched this clip I want you to do another little reflection section um, Fields asked the audience to consider the sentence black southerners were segregated because of their skin color 
she says that this is natural the sentence when we say it is natural to most americans and so my question to you is is this natural to you so she says black southerners were segregated because of their skin color you found it you read it in a book and would you just be like that's fine move on most times you know i would too i was looking at it and i was like yeah that's normal right um so why or why not was the sentence normal or not normal to you how did you think about the statement like now that i've asked you to pause on it what do you think the sentence really means um how did you interpret it what you know informational clues from once again your knowledge of the past something you read on youtube or saw on youtube read on wikipedia how did that make you create the you know mental pictures for that statement and then what knowledges do you have that you think created the normalcy or the abnormality in your mind of that sentence so even if you think it's abnormal what's missing what ideologies shaped how you think of the sentence so while reading fields fields is a little bit less dense but probably not as much so as the Moten and Harney reading so even though the intro is interesting she gives kind of a very real life example of the basketball uh commentate commentator um i really want you to focus on basically the last four sections except for one so look at the little sections i have here look at the single race the history of ideology custom and law um the other two and then while you're reading it i want you to focus not focus but think about certain things while you're reading it and a lot of and a lot of them are how we break down just the teaching of race, right? Because, you know, I started in the beginning of why race first. And it's usually because it's simple and everyone gets it. Or maybe not that they get it, but they connect with the idea as an academic subject. Like, we have to know race to know black people. That conversation, right? And so when you're reading Fields, she's trying to disrupt that a little bit. Um... And so these are kind of the three things I want you to think about a little bit, right? So when we think about race, when we think about racism, it's usually very, it's a tradition. So even looking back to the history of the United States, whatever you know about it, um, being enslavement, segregation, the founding of the nation um, yesterday, you know, racism tends to be a tradition. It's like race, race, not racism, but like race has always existed, right? And so we... Or we have this kind of way of of talking about the struggles of certain people as it being inevitable in a way. Like, because they have been raced forever and ever and ever, then the things that have happened to them make sense, right? But that, as she's saying, leaves out those questions of, okay, it may make sense, but how did it get that way? We are not just like talking about the what is, but the processes of how they get there. So those two things have to be, you know, teased out in at least our academic conversations. And she's also saying that this is 
not just a you know in the real world with everybody conversation this is also an academic problem that when people teach race when people teach the history of the united states when people teach any subject social or sociology psychology they make race a fact rather than a process that has come to be real the last or the one in the middle which i'm kind of not skipping over but doing last is the idea that race or racism is totally connected to emotion that all these kind of problems that what was happening you know we we really like make a geographic question with this or a geographic conversation what was happening in the south during jim crow education in the 1950s and 60s what martin luther king fought for was against hatred right and fields is also kind of putting a little stop on that she's trying to change and challenge how we think about that too because if it was just hatred then right wouldn't the opposite help tear some of these things down well you just need to love more or something like that but if we're saying it's institutionalized if we're saying for some people it's not even connected to emotion that it was connected to some other kind of human engagement some people would say capitalism for essential then we can't just rely on the idea of opposing hatred and that's why at least for this class and others and i'm going to hopefully bring this up in class in real life that when we say well we just need to educate people because once people have knowledge then they'll be less likely to feel negatively towards people true or at least it may be true in certain instances but as she's saying and as i'm saying to you as well there's a lot of other systematized processes that aren't just connected to emotionality and so racism yes has an emotional component but there are other systems other traditions other institutions that are part of the maintenance of racism and breaking those down take a little bit more than education so to quickly and this will basically be i think i'm just going to ask you to look at it and i'm going to give two second thoughts on kind of each of these areas um are the different sections of fields so section the first section that i really want you to focus on is the single race and she she actually does a pretty good job on this one the idea of being raced and i was talking about this earlier in this kind of lecture right that race is uh, a verb it's something that we tend to do as well we race people and that's that you know three second or one tenth of a second thing we look at someone they are raced right but it's also those bigger ideologies the worldview in which we only tend to race one group or we only think of one group as not raced and this is those kind of invisible um characters the invisible people in the world so there's like normal people and i'm be- i'm being you know i'm using that word on purpose there's normal people and then there are the raced people there are white people well let me take that there are people and then there are black people and she gives that example right that anytime that some 
in a positive, once again, in a positive or negative way, that someone who is in the race category does something, their race becomes part of their noun, part of their definition. So when I ask you who is Obama, it's not going to just be he was the president, usually. When you think of Barack Obama, it tends to be he was the black president because he has to be raced in the conversation during his um, election, during his presidency, was how he relates to blackness. And this is, once again, like, it's not always negative, it's not always positive, it's usually a mixture of all of the above. It wasn't just from white individuals who were racializing him, it was also from black people. And that's the conversation, right? Um, But then, this is my own, this is your professor's little rant as well on the word diversity itself so anytime we think of diversity like diversity is good and this is a very progressive often liberal way of um engaging in change of institution like if we want to be good people then we want to make sure that our institutions are diverse but when we actually want to put diversity in action And like, I really want you to think about that for even the current institution you're at. When you're thinking diversity, how do you think you put that into place? How do you practice making a space diverse? And this goes into our worldview, right? And this goes into how we break down who is diverse and who is not. And so it usually is you add one person of color, because we're using that language now, right? There's people who don't have color and people who do have color this is our binary breakdown lately so when we add one person of color in the mix of white people all of a sudden we have diversity and that's an interesting idea right and I want us to like think about that that despite um despite that people of color may have the same implicit bias the same worldview the same values as the white people that they are diversifying that our liberal you know barometer that the standard of diversity just has to do with tends to just have to do with skin tone now this is not everywhere not going to say that you know this is even a practice of LMU but we really have to think of how do people put into practice how do people create diversity because that's a goal but how do they actually create it and what diversity should we value yes I agree I'm not going to like throw myself under the bus because I think we need racial diversity but racial diversity I think needs to be nuanced or maybe as I do in reality I focus on cultural diversity as well as class diversity and those will probably you know or at least I claim will give more uh, change in the foundations of certain institutions than just we need different color people in the room okay so I want us to definitely always have the idea that white people are racialized too, that white people are white, that white people are a race. 
and often you know our language once again this is american worldview how a lot of people are trained if you're born here it tends to be people and then when we be when we try to be specific we talk about everyone else who is not white and that's our, spe- our specificity and so anytime you write in this class and you want to write americans i might challenge you to be more specific do you actually mean all americans or do you mean the dominant culture in the United States? Or do you mean white people? Or do you mean something else? So a lot of things too is like, can we start to call people in this kind of racializing or making sure that we keep whiteness visible? Because often we make it invisible. Can we talk about that differently? Can we say, and you know, the white president, there's been a lot of white presidents, but can that be part of the language? If we're calling Obama the black president, then Thomas Jefferson was the white president or one of the white presidents. Um, the same thing is also the kind of the nervousness when people talk about police brutality because people are asking that question and being very specific about the white cop or the white police officer, right? And that conversation is very, very racialized about police brutality but often other areas we kind of let go so make that a point in your assignments here um and I'm not saying just use you know racialization in your language willy-nilly don't do that but if we're going to be clear if we're going to have a you know if we're going to really pinpoint our worldview and think about why we need Africana studies or why Africana studies exists to disrupt and challenge certain things. One of the things is the making whiteness a reality and not making it the norm, not making that worldview the dominant worldview by not saying its name. So we need to say its name. And I want you to say its name and be okay with saying its name, at least in my class. Under that, um, in previous section about white is a race, look at reflection five, and this is another thing that's coming from the video. So how did you feel about fields when they were asking about what do white children think when they were being pulled from the pool? Um, they were saying like the black girl had a different interpretation. She was like, are they pulling it? Are they pulling their children out because I'm too dark? And you can talk a little bit about what that means, but definitely go on the other side. What would white children think? The next section on the idea of being raced is also the chicken and egg question. I'm kind of putting it that way. And this is particularly for historiography. Uh, Fields is a historian. So when we talk about history or the writing of history or understanding of history, how history is taught again, right? In K through 12, in higher education, what language do we use when we talk about the history of particularly African-Americans? Do we just say that race is the reason why everything's happening? Or do we have other ways, other factors to explain racism? And this is once again, how Fields is uh, going at this conversation, right? She's like, usually everyone's talking about history and they're being like, race is the problem. Race has created this, race is why. But should we look at a different perspective should we kind of switch and really like delve deep into that 
and even asking the ideas of race too simple an explanation right and so this is a picture on this page of um school integration and you see that you know there's a lot of angry white individuals yelling at this black person there's the national guard protecting them or at least the saying to protect them but in this example right can we just explain the difficulties of school integration as just racism or he's like or can we add other factors to the difficulty and it is basically like the institutions how people value certain things um and just how the history of the worldview came to that point in the 1950s and 60s but we should ask those questions saying simply it was just racism and people's emotional effect towards it doesn't fully give a scope to what was happening as well as privileges one side next for you know a real fast overview of fields is the how race was constructed over time and when you read that section she's basically very specific right what actions created race and you know the question i asked in the beginning which came first and Fields is going to claim that race was second, that she had to, or that whoever was around at the time, had to institutionalize a lot of extra things which turned into racial hierarchy or racism um, before, you know, basically the Africans came over. So it was this idea of, and this is once again, this is the interpretations of reality essentially it's fields worldview right so africans were enslaved but they weren't enslaved because they were black they were enslaved because they were a worker base that could be stolen and this is one of those things that we really have to like once again this is like teasing out the reality and making our current worldview that is so focused on race and take trying to try to throw that to the back for two seconds and so she really is also adding to ideas of like how did capitalism or at least how did um labor work into this picture right and so she was saying like cost for an african slave was a lot uh, more expensive at a certain point of time than a european indentured servant so people were buying i know this is horrible language sorry we're you know using European indentured servants for a while until essentially the cost of African slaves went down. So the more African slaves were brought over to Africa, the more of them there were, the longer they were living in the United States, and then their prices went down. And so their servitude and their lifelong servitude increased. Um, but that's all a little bit before the idea of black people are inherently inferior and you know like i was saying earlier the idea of like these positive qualities of africana people have better bodies and stuff like that so before once again before our current concepts of race and that being negative imagine a time where oh yeah they work longer and better and harder as laborers therefore they are good for this task so at the time it's positive in a way it's all exploitation but I'm trying to explain that it wasn't necessarily a innate quality of blackness that was saying they were better at the job 
because blackness didn't quite exist yet or the idea of negative um, anti-black inferiority or anti-black sorry racism comma or black inferiority wasn't quite around yet so and the other two things you know they had to create laws um and the laws uh such as you see in the virginia slave laws um in the 1600s and onward slowly put into place different things that change the landscape changed the culture changed how people acted in society made um basically things that people may be thinking into punishable acts so or things that people were doing made into punishable acts that people felt had a negative consequence and therefore if they thought it had a negative consequence therefore it was associated with the people so one of the ones that was you can't marry um inter- interracially is a law in the 1600s so someone might have married and people thought it was bad like morally and decided to outlaw it that one individual didn't think it was wrong at the time and didn't understand why but eventually these laws and people with power put them into law and therefore society starts to change in order to keep the laws maintain whatever you know mores and norms they think were good or bad and promote different values towards the people being affected by it as well as some other kind of absurd things so in your reflection number six i want you to look at the virginia slave laws they're on bright space they should be in the same section as everything else is is where the audio and the visual links are um so i want you to pick a law on the list so it's like a two-page list Um, What situations do you think were occurring in society that they had to make this law? What values or practices do you think they were trying to maintain? And of course, I'm being very vague. I don't know who they are. It's the Virginia legislature at the time. Um, And this is before Virginia is a state, before the United States is a state even. So it's not even Americans yet, but random people in Virginia. Um, And you can answer that question too. You can put some who's into this is it everybody i mean there are free black people around too are they part of these laws i don't know um and then there's two more questions so if you have any questions about how to answer it definitely ask me through email or in person um and then the last four slides once again i really should be fast this lecture is already really long i know when i'm gonna put it together um so from oppression to inferiority this is the section I kind of keep focusing on this whole way, right? The chicken and the egg kind of conversation. What came first? Um, and for Fields here, she's like, oppression came before inferiority. So slavery or the ideas and the, um, the construct of oppression, the practices, the institutions, the system came first for fields and if she looks you know she gives a little bit of evidence of that and then it was associated with social inferiority and so I want you to think about that too you know go back in time and think about that moment right that can someone be oppressed without being inferior can African people who were enslaved be you know put under enslavement under the you know freedom of another individual without them and their group losing kind of this cultural war so to speak can they be 
black and human in a way, but oppressed. And so this is more for thinking. This is like how can we see these kind of historical periods as well as how can we see today as differently? How can we make, you know, different choices for future society if we change how the past is? So one more time, um, she's also explains, and this is something that I also want us to clarify as well, that the ideology of race one that includes black inferiority because eventually it had to become like a choice for society right that we're going to make oppression um into inferiority and the inferiority part will be made into tradition and become part of the worldview of a large group of people and she's like there is a utility in making that ideology there, there's a utility in having black inferiority as part of the american landscape and she has two reasons one she says is more stronger than the other but it's not necessarily for black people and i think you would you know intuitively think that like black people do not benefit from black inferiority it was placed upon them but she was saying that if we go to this period of enslavement because enslavement is really important for the racial concept that slavery limited the need for free citizens aka white people at the time to exploit each other so there was like black inferiority or at least enslavement let's go to the practices and institutions helped society remain in a way free for certain people and by freedom i mean the freedom to act um to engage in property those more economic freedoms not necessarily civil freedoms so those economic freedoms to be a rich person or to hope to obtain wealth. So by having slavery there, it limited or sorry, they didn't have to or white people didn't have to directly exploit other white people. And so if white people who were not of the higher classes, the planter classes, the wealthier classes, didn't have to explicitly exploit other white people, they were exploiting black people, then those, which is the majority, as the second statement says, the three-fourths of white people who were not being exploited by the planter class directly, they still were being exploited, and that's a lot of like history and specifics, but since they did not feel they were exploited, then slavery allowed or be then then sorry then they could live freely they could enjoy independence some sense of self-determination so they use slavery or use the explanation of enslavement of africans to explain their situation right and so right this is kind of like what thought process did they come up with to be like all right the planter class has this group of people. I am trying to obtain wealth. I may be struggling to obtain this wealth. And I'm trying to understand or trying to make interpretation of this whole situation that I, as a white um, farmer, am in. And sometimes, or at least for the most part, became a anti-black conversation they put themselves on a racial hierarchy that they would rather 
be closer to white planters than black enslaved people. And if they're better than this group, then they must have superiority. And I'm being very simplistic on this conversation. I don't think, well, I don't know actually, but I don't think a bunch of white people got together in 1700s and was like, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to oppress black people. But like we're saying, it's over time. Subtle practices in order to make middle class white people different from the caste of enslaved people gave them a different, you know, emotional effect. They started to do different practices in order to maintain their space, maintain the um, position of being basically in between the planters and the enslaved. And since they were the majority, they basically get to dictate what type of society is created, or at least on the mass level. Um, You know, the rich people will always do what rich people do. The extreme poor and exploited also have their own society. But as we're saying, three-fifths of white individuals got to basically define a kind of American worldview that we associate with middle-class values. And this is the last part of Field's article, right? And she's kind of like, this, the terrain then was shaped, the geography was shaped because of the inferior inferiority of African people or the created inferiority of African people and the middle class. And I'm using a contemporary term, but the middle location, white farmers, um, and what they needed to maintain their own system of uh, wealth acquisition and protection from enslavement, um, as well as, and this is that American conversation that I brought up way earlier, of how everyone's living in the society of enslavement when the word of the day is liberty and freedom. So we all had to basically, or I wasn't there, but everyone in the situation had to explain their situation, right? They had to interpret the world. They had to kind of redefine their worldview. And the worldview that stuck wasn't the worldview of the abolitionists, both black and white, wasn't even the worldview of the African people, but was the worldview of this middle class of people So when you look at like the last shaping the train section, and I'm kind of once again reiterating something else she said, was the African Americans did not participate or were not considered consulted, sorry, in this whole worldview creation that the United States would eventually become, um, could take on as its dominant worldview. They were not considering themselves an inferior race, clearly. Um, And so more likely they were seeing themselves as a nation. And so they used the word race, um, at least the literate Africans of the 19th century would use the term race, but they were saying more that they were kind of a nation within a nation um, rather than a racialized group because race has this inferiority and this class, or at least this invisible class division within it. They were not trying to participate in that conversation. Instead, we're owning the fact that as 
people with our own citizenship essentially as a citizenry we deserve freedom we deserve rights as a nation of people with similar interests and connection with each other across you know all divides of class and all the other stuff I was going to say race but um across class and uh gender because our group would benefit from fighting together against certain issues than trying to attack this big slavery segregation by themselves so it was always for them african americans being a racial group wasn't to reaffirm racial inferiority or the systems in place that were put by primarily white people instead they were trying to use race as a something to consolidate consolidate a political party essentially um which i would say would still is the reality today in my last slide and i'm going to read this verbatim and then this is the end of our lecture but i want you to think of this and this is a statement in fields on page 117 in the shaping terrain section um if race lives on today it does not live on because we have inherited from our forebears of the 17th century or the 18th century but because we continue to create it today and this connects to the social construct right that social constructs don't exist on their own they're not above us they are maintained in their practice and we as Americans or people who are living in America for a significant amount of time, we maintain these systems. We maintain racism. And yes, it may be implicit. It may be things we inherit. But in order to change uh, things we don't like about our racial ideologies, it's going to take significant work. Or at least I claim, Jennifer claims, it's going to take significant work. But these are some of the answers as to why a racial ideology still exists today and why it exists in the way it does exist today.